Hi, everybody. Welcome to the second class of our special excursus on the three weeks and our fourth class in total of Beth Lita's new series on the prophets and prophecy. Um, so just to do a quick recap to situate ourselves in the Jewish calendar, we are now in uh, entering the second week of what's called Tlos de Puranusa, the three weeks of consequences, usually called the three weeks of punishment, but puranus, like, uh, like the verb actually means to, like, um, to satisfy a debt. So it doesn't really necessarily, like, you can pay off a debt and it's the same verb, same root. So it doesn't necessarily mean punishment, although colloquially that's what it means. But it really means consequences, and that's really what kind of the prophecies are, are, are hinged on, is uh, if X, then Y. We don't just get to do things willy-nilly. Um, so we are in the middle now of the Tlas de Puranusa, which conclude with Tishabov. And we, uh, after the three weeks of consequences, will be the seven weeks of comfort, Shiva de Nechimta. That will actually take us through the rest of the Jewish uh, Torah reading year. So last week we looked at the first chapter-ish of Jeremiah, which is the first special half Torah for this period. And we realize that most of it is actually about getting the prophet ready to do what seems to be essentially a, a challenging job, a job of challenge, right? The role of the prophet is, as is famously said, to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted, right? So the role of the prophet is to stand athwart the tides of history, to go against the status quo. And because of that, the prophet famously meets opposition. The prophet is unpopular. The prophet is thrown out of the city, right? The prophet meets the, uh, is the unyielding force that meets the immovable object. And the question is, can tshuva actually effect that miracle of change of people who don't want to? Can tshuva change a heart of stone into a heart of flesh? This week, we actually will look at the prophecy that God asks Jeremiah to bring to the people. So last week, we saw kind of the first few verses of it, and it seemed like God was like buttering the people up. Like, remember the love of our youth. Remember how it used to be so good. Remember the origin. Remember the essence of what our relationship is. And this week, we're going to look at, and look what you did to it, right? This, like, look how you just ruined you just ruined this beautiful love that we had. So this is this is this is a heavy one, but let you know less uh, visceral than next week's. Next week's Haftorah is the most intense. Shabbat, uh, Shabbat Chazon, the famous Chazon Yeshayahu, Isaiah's vision. This week, even though Jeremiah tends to be like categorized as the you know the prophet, the prophet laureate of doom and gloom, uh, this one is uses a lot of actually like very sharp metaphors but does not focus over much on the doom. Um, it's not like the Book of Lamentations. Here it's really trying to figure out where it was, and that's what we're gonna focus on. Where did things go wrong? And the question God asks is, you know, as we've kind of talked about in the first couple weeks, is a deeply personal one. God is saying, we had something really special, and what caused you to forget that? To forget your role in it, to forget your place in that special relationship between me and you. Um, so let's, let's get into it. Uh, I'm going to share the screen with sources. Okay, great. Can everyone see that okay? Great. So we're going to focus on the first word of the Haftorah. So each, you know, like the way that rabbis name things is after the first significant word. So this Haftorah is called 
Shimu. Listen. Like, Shimu Devar Hashem. That's the first few words. Shimu Devar Hashem, Beis Yaakov, V'chol Mishpechos, Beis Yisroel. Hear, or listen, to the, to the speech of God, house of Jacob, and all, I and all of the, the families, the clans of the house of Israel. Effe effectively, the, uh, the substance of that verse is, listen. And why is it, the rabbis ask, um, is listening or hearing audition so central, so deeply underscored in this puzzle? Um, so I want to actually give us our first real substantive introduction to one of my favorite midrashim. Uh, this is a midrash called Psikta the Rav Kahana, um, the issuances of Rav Kahana. It is, I've mentioned it before, I just want to give a quick recap. It is a early rabbinic midrash that we actually didn't have an extant copy of until Wiesenschaft, until the Jewish academic um, Renaissance in the 1800s. Um, Leopold Soons um, was able to piece together fragments of this midrash from other midrashic collections and put it together. And then, da da da, Shlomo Buber, Martin Buber's grandfather, who was also a famous rabbi and scholar, found a manuscript and published it himself. And then another rabbi in the mid 20th century, uh, Bernard Mandelbaum, published his critical edition of it. And it's a beautiful book. And if anyone ever wants to get a real sense of how the rabbis gave divrei Torah, they gave sermons, this is the best midrash to look at because it's the most literarily polished, um, one of the most literarily polished midrashim. It's clear that these are framed and, and established as, um, as sermons. They're very beautifully put together. Um, so, in the Psikta Rav Kahana, we can tell it's a synagogue, you know, there's two classic categories of Midrash. There's Beit Midrash Midrash, and there's Synagogue Midrash. Beit Midrash Midrash is the stuff that's like, oh, the rabbis are like picking apart out of the Torah, that's like, you know, they're trying to find fun things to say about it. It's exegetical. Synagogue Midrashim are these collections of sermons, and we know this one is a Synagogue Midrash because A, it's structured very literarily, as we're going to see, and B, it is also organized according to the according to the special Torah readings. So why else would the rabbis organize it according to the special Torah readings unless it was used in the synagogue? <laughs> okay, so here we have um, the rabbis giving us a very uh, very interesting schematic. Namely, there are four kinds of, of hearers. There are four kinds of auditors. So it's v'shomeli yishkan betach v'sha'anan, one who listens to me. Yishkon betach v'sha'anan will dwell with peace and security, will dwell securely. That is a verse from Mishle. I ask you, if this is a commentary on Jeremiah, why are we starting with a verse from Mishle? Ideas? Um, I think it's because we need to understand what the word to listen means. Great. So, very wants, good. so he's, he's taking another example and then trying to derive the meaning from Great. that example. A, that, is a, that is a fantastic exegetical strategy. Here's a word. How do we figure out what it means? We look to other examples of that word found in the same text. Right now, I mean, the word to hear is a common word. We know what hearing means, but they're trying to make it unfamiliar to us. Oh, you think you know what it means to hear? 
Well, we're actually going to try to explore it and explode it and defamiliarize ourselves with it to see how it's actually much more than we thought it was. So beautiful. Why else, though? Why, can't he why couldn't the Midrash have found an example of listening from Jeremiah? Why is it in a whole other part of the, of the Tanakh? So this is what's called a rachok. This is what's called a faraway verse. And the artistry of this style of midrash is to bring us from the rachok to the karov. When I say artistry, I really mean that. It is, a, it is an exhibition of the rabbi's skill to elegantly and eloquently wend and weave his way from a faraway verse. And then when you hear the verse, as like a community, you're like, what verse does, what does this verse have to do with what we're learning today? What does this verse have to do with our Torah reading? And the rabbi brings you on a journey, starting from the far away and bringing you back to a verse close nearby. Okay, so we'll see how he starts with a faraway verse, which is usually taken from Kesuvim, from the, the writings, the, miscel, the miscellaneous part of the end of the Bible. And it will bring us to what is topical, to what is relevant to this week. Okay, so we'll see how the, how the author of the Midrash does this. So, listen to me and you will dwell with peace and security. There are four kinds of auditors. It's like one of those, you know, uh, boxes, right? It's like yes, no, X, Y, right? So there's a person who listens and is rewarded. There's a person who listens and loses. There's a person who doesn't listen and is rewarded, and there's a person who doesn't listen and loses. Okay, now they're going to give us examples of all of these. What's an example of somebody who listens, who do, who listens and loses? Can you think of somebody who listened who shouldn't have? <laughs> who was led astray? So the example they give is Adam, Adam Arisha. Adam Amar, God says, Ki shamata You listened to the voice of your wife, who in this case encouraged him to eat the fruit from the tree. And because of that, umahif seed, and what did he lose? Ki afar atza ve'al afar tashuv. Dust you are, into dust you shall return. So the consequence of listening, in this case, was grave. Okay? But lest you think now that you should never listen to people, now they're going to give you an example of someone who listened and was rewarded. Who is somebody who listens and was rewarded? That is Avraham Avinu. Just back um, up for a second. Yeah. Because Adam didn't listen because he should have listened to God. Uh-huh. True. I think that's a great example. Okay. Yeah. I guess it's the case of, well, you know, you listen, you hear a lot of things in your life. The question is, in a sense, what do you listen to? So he heard God, but he didn't listen to God. He heard Eve and he listened to Eve in this case. And also, I want to say, lest you also think that this is like a misogynistic midrash, it's like, ah, don't listen to women. Um, we're going to see a counterexample now. Um, who is it? What's an example of somebody who listens and is rewarded? That's Avram Avinu. Why? 
Kol asher tomare lecha, sara shema bikola. Everything God says to him, that your wife Sarah says to you, listen to her. And what's the reward? Literally, the words right after that in the same verse. Umaniskar ki beyitzchak ikare lechazara. That through, through Yitzchak, you will be recalled by your descendants. So it is, what is, what's the reward? That Avraham's lineage, right, Avraham and Sarah's lineage will continue like God promised. The blessing, thus, that God gives Abraham, that your descendants will be numerous like the stars of the sky and the sand on the beach, da-da-da-da-da, it was actually hinging on him listening to his wife. All right, so here we, I mean, it could, it, it could have gone either, you know, you could have seen this as like a, as going a certain kind of way in terms of gender dynamics and things like this. But while the listener in both cases is masculine and the advice giver in both cases is feminine or female, um, the question is ultimately not about what kind of person we're talking about, but rather what kind of advice is being given. All right, that's irrespective of the uh, the qualities. It's really strictly about the substance. Okay, so we have two examples now of listening going in two different ways. Listening and losing, and listening and gaining. So you might think then that, ah, the question is like about listening. But no, said the rabbi, sometimes actually you shouldn't listen. So what's an example of somebody who didn't listen and was rewarded? That's Joseph. Velo shama Eleha l'shakev etzla. Shakov etzla. Um, he didn't listen to her, to Ashes Potiphar, right, to the wife of Potiphar, to sleep with her. Right, so that was an example of somebody trying to coerce him into doing something wrong. And that was an example of somebody who refused to listen and accordingly was rewarded. And what was his reward? Yosef And uh, the blessing to Jacob is that Joseph will be the one to um, will be the one to close his eyes. Will be there at his death. So the reward is that Jacob and Joseph will reunite. And it was only by dint of his uh, moral calculus, right, to not listen when he was being encouraged to. So that's like the obverse of Adam. Okay, Adam was convinced to do something and go astray. Joseph was a it was an attempt to convince him to do something to go astray and he refused. Whereas with Abraham, the risk it seemed was him not listening. And God said, listen, listen to Sarah. And because he listened, only because he listened, the the blessing was fulfilled. And here we have a last example of somebody who didn't listen and lost out. And who is that? And here comes the sucker punch. Israel. <laughs> Israel writ large. Lo shimu v'hipsidu eilu Yisrael, velo shamu elai velo hatu es oznam. They didn't listen to me, and they didn't incline their ear. And that's from Jeremiah seven twenty six. So per your point earlier, Renee, why 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 couldn't the, the rabbi of the midrash have used this verse? That's the word to hear, and it's from the same book. So while you are totally right that they go to other examples to try to understand what a word means, there's something specific about going beyond, going far away. 
and we'll see the elegance of this, right? They start with, with Proverbs and they're wending their way too close. And here we're coming closer now because now we're actually quoting from Jeremiah. They didn't listen to me and they didn't incline their ears. Umahif sidu, and what was Israel's loss? What did they lose? Asher lamus lamus vasher lecherv lecharev. Those to plague in this case, but those to death will die and those condemned to the sword will be sorted. Um, so why, right? So this is an anonymous Midrash, right? We don't see a name associated with it. Why do you think that the author of the Midrash wanted to explode out this idea of what it means to listen? What are they trying to, what are, how are they trying to, in a backwards way, redefine what it means to listen? Because you could think what it means to listen, right, is, is, is a, let's say, a mechanical act. Oh, what it has to do is your ear is a receptacle, and to listen means to perceive and to understand, right, first to hear the words, to be able to know what the words are, and then to understand what they mean, and then to, in, and then to internalize them. But the key to hearing or to listening here in Torah is not about the mechanics of it, but is rather about response. It's like discernment, almost. Discernment, very nice. It's a very nice word for it. Right. Discernment is, is quite a good, because that means judgment. It is about making a judgment. It is about hearing something and weighing whether it is something worth listening to or not. So the key to hearing isn't just the like the unit, uh, the like the um, so I'm looking for it, the monad, right? Just you as an individual hearing some words out there, but rather hearing is by its very nature a dialogical act. It is a relational act. And it, ha and it situates you in that relationship, right? It is an example, or an example is the wrong word. It is a performance of that relationship, okay? So here we have four different ways of hearing, right? Hearing that went well and hearing that didn't go well. And they all have to do with the question of consequence. But it also has to do with the question of beyond discernment, although that's quite right, Susie action right you following through on it and that is why also shema in hebrew like na'asevenishma as we'll see actually later down in the sh in the source sheet we will do and we will hear we will do and we will listen right that's the literal translation but lishmoa can also mean to obey right to hear and to follow right to follow the instructions but to Susie's point, which I think is quite right, it's, it's not obey in this passive sense. It is to follow when discerned that it is the right path to walk. It resituates you as an agent, right? You are not just a vehicle for the instructions, but you are the decider. Not to be like George W. Bush, but you are the decider, right? You are deciding, you are discerning whether it is worth following or not. That is your moral role. Okay, 
So we're not quite at the end yet, and the truth is actually we're not going to finish the unit because the completion of this is to get us to the first verse of, of our Haftorah. And the fact that it's missing means that this is probably actually a part of a longer thing. But we have a little extra thing tacked on here. Amar Rabbi Levi. Rabbi Levi says, Ha'ozen laguf kinkal lakelim. Now, the word is kinkan in the printed edition, but I, I, I looked at the manuscript notes and kinkal seems more accurate because kankan means like a vat or a vessel and that is a kind of kli it's a kind of vessel but first of all kalim in rabbinic hebrew most commonly actually means clothing so what would a vat have to do with clothing maybe it's like a laundry vat but if you pay attention to the mushal to the parable in a moment you'll see that the better word for this is kinkal which is from the greek and it means fumigator Fumigator? What? So fumigation, right, to like, basically to incense, to like, use a sensor, to incense up your clothing was a way that they laundered them. They smoked out their clothing to disinfect them and to, um, yeah, make them smell nice. So the ear to the body, this is an analogy if you go all the way back to your SATs. The ear to the body is like the fumigator for clothes. That's curious. What does he mean? Ma kinkal hazeh shehu malei kelim es ma'ashan tachtav v'kulan margishim. That's nice. It kind of rhymes. Just like how a fumigator, when it is full of clothes, if you fumigate from below, if you ma'ashan it from below, then everything gets infused with smoke. Similarly, Similarly, incline your ear and come to me. Listen and revive yourselves. What? What's the nimshal? Help! Okay, what's so amazing about Midrash, especially about parables in Midrash, is that it is involving the listener. Um, David Stern, in his wonderful book, Parables in Midrash, says that you think that the parable is like a one-to-one -one thing. It maps up, but there's always something that's like a little bit off that really draws you in and has you try to figure out what's going on. So when it's, what are the, what's, what's the, like, what's the key here? What's the chap? The key element in this midrash is the mushal, is that the fumigation is happening below. And similarly, he's focusing on the language of incline your ear, right? It's a very physical, like embodied image. Incline your ear such that the words come in. And you have to do it below so that it all gets in there. Right? The idea is to open up your ear, to tilt your head so that it all comes running into you. And it revives you, just like Hulan Margishin, everything is like cleaned out, everything is uh, infused with smoke, and thus all of you, all of your body, all of yourself is infused. Okay, so I, I'm going to do this one outside, but here further in the, in the Parsha, Rabbi Levi has another mushal. It's full of mushalim. He says, we compare this to a lady, or like a capital L lady, like a, a, a matron, a matrona. 
uh, this is an aristocratic lady who marries a king and her dowry is that she brings in two bushels of myrtle. Apparently that was a thing. Okay. So she loses one and she's so sad. And the king comforts her and says, guard and keep the remaining one as if it's both. Okay. So treat it like it's both of them. Similarly, says we, when we married God, we brought in two myrtles, na'asev and ishma. We will, we will do and we will hear. Which one did we lose? We lost, we will do. Because we went off the path. We went off, we went off the derech, right? We started worshiping other gods. We started doing all kinds of terrible, immoral things. And thus God says to the people, treat we will hear as if it's both of them. And thus it says, Shimu Devar Hashem, which brings us to the first verse of our Haftorah. So it's, it's, a, it's a striking image that the notion of what it is we bring into, I mean, first of all, the fact that like the analogy is that it's as if we married God is a striking one and a very common one, especially in, in this Midrash. But secondly, what it is that we bring into God as our dowry is our behavior and our disposition. So on one hand, you could see our relationship of God as being, and I think a lot of people do see this, strictly behavioral, right? You do the mitzvahs, you, 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 you do all kinds of mitzvahs, you do Torah, you do tefillah, da, 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 da. But God says, first of all, what we do so often falls away. I mean, how many of us are like perfectly behaving partners? Right? How many of us are perfectly behaving children? Right? How many of us are perfectly behaving parents? You know, whatever. But the real element, says God, the one that is, contains both, really, in a sense, the more essential element is our disposition, is the relationship itself and our place within it, the way we face God. Are we tilting our ear? Right? Are we turning towards you? Are we opening up to you? Or is that thread of the relationship gone? So listening here is really nothing more and nothing less than what it means to enact and to actualize the relationship itself. And that is, in this Haftorah, the last thread of hope. He goes, the Midrash ends up going through this whole long thing of like, it's and this is incredible actually, this is incredible. It says, listen to the words of God such that you won't have to listen to Jeremiah. Listen to the prophet so you won't have to listen to the rebuke. But listen to the rebuke if you don't listen to the prophet or else you're going to listen to the punishment. Oh, but listen to the punishment such that you don't have to listen to the horn, right? And the horn seems like to be the apocalypse. But it goes like down and down, down, and down. And it finally gets to, this is incredible. Listen to it while you're alive. So you won't have to listen to it when you're dead. Let your ears listen to it. So your body doesn't have to. Or then if you don't, let your body listen to it. So your bones don't have to. And then finally, as it says in Ezekiel, 
dry bones will hear the word of God. <laughs> it's very metal, right? But it's the it's such like a stark and visceral image in terms of what it means, right? But I think on one hand, right, we have this descent, right? It's this descent. But fascinatingly, the highest point is to, to remember the relationship. It's between you and God. And when you forget that, that's when the prophet enters the fray. The prophet, in a sense, is, an, is always an alarm. You don't need a prophet if you are already actualizing the relationship. The prophet is trying to reconnect what's become broken. But then if you don't listen to the prophet, then come the lessons from experience, right? What happens, the consequences. But those, interestingly, are what you listen to as well. It's all the same verb. Because again, it's about paying attention. That's the key to, and to Susie's point, it's about discernment. It's about paying attention. Treating what's happening to you as something that you pay attention to and you learn from, that you get data, you glean data from, and you grow, right? You learn from it and you change. Everything is a learning experience and it all keeps on spiraling down. And, and again, you can look at this as like this doom laden spiral to, you know, to the grave. But on the other hand, you can also flip it and see it as actually the persistence of some ever, I'm use the word persistent again, apologies to the repetition, for the clumsiness, but some ever persistent glimmer of hope. Because even your bones can hear this. On one hand, it says like, you don't want to let your bones hear it because that's like, that, that'll be bad, right? That, that means you're, you know, dead. That's not great. But on the other hand, even death isn't the end. There's always still in some way a chance to still listen. Even your bones have a chance to listen. And then says Ezekiel, right? Your bones will be revived and flesh will be, you know, knit anew. So there, it's, it's even as far down as you go, there's always a way to start climbing your way up. And the key to turn it around is to listen. All right, the key to reverse the dynamic is to pay attention. It's to stop ignoring and to start listening. Okay, thoughts before we head more directly into the actual Haftorah? Comments? Yeah. I like how the listening is more important than the doing because as you said, like listening requires paying attention. Like it's really easy sometimes to tune out. You're not really hearing what's happening. You're not really actually taking in information. And one of the things that you talked about in another class is like, miracles are, or whatever, like they're everywhere, they're always happening, but you have to, it's that we stop looking for them, we're not paying attention. And so it's just sort of like that, that connection of hearing and paying attention and having that connection to God and knowing what's going on, like, sorry. Oh, sorry, no, I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention. What was that you were saying? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Topical humor. No, that's a really great point, right? Is that like what it's, we think of a miracle, and that's a great that's a great uh, counter as a great um, comparative example. We think of a miracle as something that someone does to us, or someone does in the world. Something you know, God initiates some kind of miracle. But the question is more like, what is it that presents itself in our experience, right? What presents itself in our attention? So thus, the issue about miracles maybe miracles are constant, 
And the question is more actually, are we going to allow them into our viewpoint, right? Allow them into our vantage, allow them into our, um, like the scope of our experience. So similarly here, right? The question is less about, is God speaking? God is constantly speaking. The question is what part of us is finally gonna listen? What's it gonna take for us to finally pay attention? How are we gonna tune in? Okay, so, um, so here's the actual Haftorah, okay? We're gonna do it largely in the English, uh, but we'll pop back to the Hebrew every once in a while. So, thus said God, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they abandoned me and went after delusion and were deluded? So I, I, I think that translation is still fine, but the word is hevel, like hevel havalim, vanity of vanities. Vapor of, the word hevel means breath. It means vapor, literally. So it's something insubstantial, right? Something not with any worth or, or, or essence to it at all. But the word means, it seems like something, it's not just neutral, something worthless, but like you'd say, oh, that's worthless. Not just like it has zero worth, but it's like, as it's bad. So to such that you'd be following something absurd and be then made absurd by it. But it's, I mean, it's, again, as we were talking about in the first couple of weeks when we were framing the phenomenon of prophecy, this is a deeply personal question God is asking, right, through Jeremiah. What wrong, like, what wrong did you see, did your ancestors see in me? Like, to, to break up with me effectively, right? This is like texting your ex at like 3 a.m. and going like, what did I do? Right? It's, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's framed rhetorically, to be fair. Like, this is actually God setting up Israel to be like, obviously nothing. Like, this is nonsense. But, you know, it's, it's, it's still, it's got this pang. It's got this like, oh, it's got this little thing in it, hook in it. And uh, they never, and, and this is incredible, this is incredible. They never asked themselves, where is God <laughs> who brought us from the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, a land of, and this is God really like laying it on, a land of deserts and pits, a land of drought and darkness, a land no person had traversed where no human being had dwelt. Nobody was in the desert going, oh, where's God? I was, <laughs> like, they were all recognized I was there. I, 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 I kept them alive in a desert. <laughs> what did you, you and now now you forgot about me right like you didn't say this when when i was keeping you alive every day i wonder what changed <laughs> um so i mean the the it's i mean it is kind of i mean it's stark it's, it's also i mean it is actually like it's funny it's 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 deeply i don't know it's deeply ironic it's clever it's ironic um <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't thought to. It is an early example of Jewish guilt. Yeah. Um, I brought you to this country of farmland to its joy and fruit, its fruit and its bounty, but you came and defiled my land. You made my possession abhorrent. The priests never asked themselves, where is God? The guardians of the teaching, tofse Torah, like those who, those who, um, who are the curators, the curators of Torah, Never, um, never ignored me. The rowing Pashubi, the shepherds, the leaders, um, betrayed me, sinned against me. The prophets prophesied for Baal. Um, 
and followed what can do no good. It's, that's so cool. Lo yo ilu is a, is a verb, but it's actually, here's a, a funny thing, is it's actually a participle, and every participle is a noun, too. So v'achare, and after, that which will not help, they followed. Right, so what's, what are the two chapters in the, the love story, or the, whatever, the, the relationship story of God and the people of Israel? What are the two main parts? When was it good and when did it go bad? I want to make sure we get like the again the literary artistry of it because this is very very elegantly done and like the way that it's switched. Okay, so we start with the first chapter, which is the love of their youth that we remember from the end of last week, right? The love of their youth. This is the intimate relationship in the desert, and it was intimate and immediate. When I say immediate, what I mean is the relationship between God and Israel was clear. It's clear and it was obvious. Why? Because if God wasn't there, they would have died. And they didn't say, oh, where's God? When God was literally feeding them hand to mouth. Right? They didn't rebel when they needed God. Oh, I mean, well, first of all, they did. But secondly, they rebelled all the time. But they, uh, not sustainably, right? They largely, for the most of the 40 years, they, like, it was tangible, right? But what, but, and we'll, we'll get to what kind of relationship that was in a second. And then what's, what characterizes in this model the, se the shift to the second part? What's the second volume of their love story? Right, the demarcating line is the Jordan River, when they crossed the Jordan River and settled the land of Canaan. Right, a land of a country of farmland. Eh, Avias Chamel Eretz Carmel. Right, Carmel. It, yeah, it's lush, verdant land. Okay, so I mean, do you see the contrast? Right, desert, lifeless, dry, arid. Nothing can grow there. God brings them to a bounteous, verdant land of rolling hills. Right, and rain. Okay, a land where they can grow things. Let Chol Piria Vituva to eat its fruits and its bounty. But, and here remember the, the letter Vav is both a conjunction and a disjunction. Usually means and, but it can often mean but. But they came and they defiled my land, my, my possession, and made it uh, an abomination. Very good. Very good, Susie. Yes. So, precisely. In the desert, we were dependent on God. Right? And it's an infantilizing relationship. God's, I mean, the language of actually, of like, nursing is in that, is in that description in, in Devarim. Right? That God suckled, like, God fed us honey from the rock. Right? Nursed us, effectively. We were babies. And when you're a baby, a baby's love is not, I mean, it is, it is existential, but it's not intentional. You get the difference, right? Like, the way a baby loves you, I imagine, the way a baby, this is from my philosophy, but I've been able to deduce it from first principles. Um, the way a baby 
loves you is because the entire year their being is dependent on you and such they like they shine the full force and radiance of their like entire life into you right such that like when they are like goo goo gaga eyed you melt and when they're screaming at you you die right but it's not an intentional relationship because babies don't have intention babies are strictly immediate it's they don't even have object permits right it's just about am i hungry am i not hungry you are the source of their life and thus babies are responsive to that that's israel in the desert but once there's individuation once we're in a land where we are the source of our own sustenance the question now is, can you shift to an intentional relationship, not a dependent relationship? And the answer is no, apparently, right? Because they are brought to a land of verdance and of, of um, fertility, right? Of, of lush um, foliage and the like. And what they do with it is they ruin it. And if you remember from Torah, when talk about like the succession of curses and the like, to defile the land means you get vomited out, right? It's very, it's very visceral language. Yakias, right? Like God will vomit you out. So they came and they took something. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting point, right? Like in a desert, nothing can become spoiled, right? Microbes can't grow in the desert. You need moisture. But here you enter now this moist land, right? And you have to care for it. It's like the Brita filter, right? When it's the summer, my Brita filter, it like grows algae on the bottom of it because it's a moist, humid environment. So I have, every once in a while, I need to like open it up and scrub it out, you know, with soap and the like. Oh, if you have a Brita filter, look at it make sure to wa watch out um but what it means to be in a moist environment i hate the word moist i'm going to use it because it's gross because it's potentially gross because water is the is the environment for life so there's potential for life in eretz Canaan in eretz yisrael and when life happens it needs cultivation and it needs i mean like you know like like everybody became like a plant mom during the pandemic right and Plants are things that require care. I mean, children too, but or plants are things that require care, water, tending, cultivation and the like, right? And you need to trim them and prune them and take care of them. And there's, but they can have blight and they can have rot and, and root rot and things like that, right? So when it demands something of you, when it enters you into the relationship, you as an agent, then you have to listen. Listening and agency are the same thing. It's the same point. What are you paying attention to? What choices are you making? So God brings you to a land from immediacy to potential. And potential is dependent on you. You can listen and be rewarded, listen and be punished. Listen, not, li you know, refuse to listen and be rewarded, refuse to listen and to lose out right it is dependent on you to figure out what is the right course to start to pay attention so you came to file my land and you made my possession abhorrent the priests never asked themselves where is god the rabbis ignored me the rulers rebelled the prophets prophesied 
based on foreign gods and followed what is worthless. Um, yeah. Okay, so if you you continue with like the god goddess parent metaphor, yeah. like in the desert, he was taking care of them, having to keep them alive and stuff, and now okay, here's this plan where you don't need me as much. Yeah. You have like all well, the resources. Yeah. Well, you think you don't need me as much, but if now everyone's sort of lazy or spoiled or complacent or whatever word you want to use for why they're not being as diligent isn't that in a weird sort of way because god created that like they created this expectation oh god's always going to take care of us we don't act any way we want like yeah no fair point actually there's a very you know the there's a fabulous book by my friend dove weiss uh, all about Midrash Tanhuma, which he finds a very interesting example of like a radical uh, chutzpah, because it is full of examples of confrontations between Israel and God, in which Israel, like the rabbis basically put like Israel blaming God in their mouth. Uh, so one of the famous examples is uh, the sin of the golden calf, right? I said above, oh, you stopped listening to me because you got rid of your obedience because you, um, you went to the sin of the golden calf. Well, they say actually, what do you expect, says Israel, um, it's like you took a 13-year-old um, excitable teenager, um, you know, just like per cologned him up, just like sprayed Axe body spray all over him and, and put him in front of a, a house of ill repute. What did you expect was going to happen? Right? So like, it, I mean, that's, that is essentially the point, right? You can't blame us. You basically set us up for this. Um, that, you know, that might be the case. But on the other hand, right, that's all individuation, right? Don't we, don't we always move from a, from a position of dependence to one of gradual independence? Yeah, right? but mm -hmm. ideally you're being taught, right? Like you're being yeah. given responsibilities and expectations and rules and right. like you're being taught. I mean, and I, you know, we weren't there. We don't know what really happened, but like, right. um, yeah, I don't know what I just sort of. Right. No, for sure. I like, mean, to like be obviously, fair, they, like, they here's this great years. land, and then everyone kind of got weird and lazy and spoiled. Well, if right. they're being lazy and spoiled, why are they being lazy and spoiled? Right. Right. I mean, they had five hundred years. Right. This is like this is the. Okay. This is this is the this is the Babylonian period. Okay. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't ten years later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, that's the whole thing. The Book of Shov team is like full of that, and that's why you know, like, it's a failure of that kind of model. Um, okay. So <laughs> this is amazing. And then God continues. God's like, oh, I will go on accusing you. <laughs> let, me, let me just count out the ways in which you suck. Um, I, will accuse, I will accuse your children's children, which God actually specifically said God wouldn't do. Like earlier in the Torah, God says, like, I will hold you accountable for your sins, but I will not hold your children accountable up to the fourth generation. Right? Except, well, ki ivru chitim. This is, this is, I mean, it's beautiful. It's actually also very helpful for trying to think of, to figure out biblical geography. I don't have a mind for it. So, cross over to the isles of the Kitim and look. Send to Kedar and observe carefully. Quick point. Are, you, are we noticing the way that these verses are constructed? This is what's called, this is a, a fine example of, of biblical, there are two kinds of, of, literature in the Torah. There's poetry and prose. 
biblical prose is just, you know, narrative. It has nothing specific. That it. It's just words. Uh, biblical poetry, though, is formal in the sense that it is often constructed based on a parallelistic structure. Cross over to the islands of the Kitiim and sea. Send out and perceive the, um, the Kedar. Right, so we see place, place, go, look, send, observe. Right, so it's, it's basically two verses, two halves of the verse that basically repeat itself, but using different like plug and chug variables. See if aught like this, see if anything like this has ever happened before. So God says, your, your impudence is unique. Like, well done. Nothing like this has ever happened in the world before. Has any nation changed, and by change what they really mean is swapped out. Has any nation ever exchanged its gods, even though they are no gods? Right? Has any nation ever swapped out actual god for, you know, these false ones? In other words, bad deal, guys. You really messed up. For, but my people has exchanged its glory. The Ami Hemir Kivodo below Yo'il. Remember that Lo Yo'ilu up there? Below Yo'il. My people has, so the word here is Temura, that's the noun. Temura is a sin. So the sin of Temura is to, it's, it's the sin of appropriation, expropriate, uh, appropriation. Basically, the sin is to personally benefit from what is not, what is God's property. So if someone declares something dedicated to the temple, it's called hektesh, then only God is allowed to use it. And by use it, we mean used in the temple, part of a sacrifice, etc., etc. But for you to go and like, okay, someone says, that cow is hektesh, Bli hektesh. Someone designates a cow as hektesh, right? So then you cannot go over and use that cow and have burgers. You can't yoke that cow and you can't milk it. You can't yoke it and use it for farm labor. It is now only God's. Okay, that's Tamura. Tamura, to be actually more, uh, to be more accurate, is actually to try to actually change out like to basically get it back by paying for it. But you can't do that because once you make something gods, it's actually, val it's limitless. It's, it's, it's value is infinite. You cannot uh, assess it and exchange it for money. Okay. So what have they done? Wait, they have done second. this. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. Uh, what you just said, because um, that's not true because we buy back our firstborn sons. Yeah, that is true. Um, that is by special dispensation. Okay. Yeah, that's not something you're generally allowed to do. Um, there's a whole... There's a whole Masechet in the Mishnah called Tumuros. It's all about this issue. Okay. So, so that's the exception. The Ami... Yeah, exactly. I mean, the truth is, as a Kohen, I uh, have had fantasies of um, running away with a child... <laughs> Like, someone gives me the kid, it is mine. I, I'm not going to take a silver dollar for this. This is my baby. Run away. Um, uh, that's, a, that's a beautiful image. My people, I and mean, this is so, like, again, so personal. My people, says God, have swapped me. Well, swapped their glory. And who's their glory? It's me. For, for something, like, vapid. For something... Dumb. 
right? But something because something low you. I mean, I think the crassness is really to the point, right? Like, what's the what's the main thing in a way that God is accusing Israel of here? It's not having like a good. It's not having a good sense, right? It's like not actually like. To, back to Susie's point from the beginning about listening, it's not. It's about lacking discernment. You've lost sight of what's valuable and what's not. Right? You've swapped me out, God, your partner in this relationship, literally God, for something that has like crass immediate value. So maybe in a sense, Israel is still trying to be that immediate, dependent kind of partner in a relationship. Just try always focusing on what they can get and forgetting that the land is about what you can give. Right? Seeing yourself as a contributor, as an agent, not just as a recipient. Not infantilized, but individuated. Shomu shamayim alzos v'sa'aru charevu me'od ne'um Hashem. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be horrified, utterly dazed, says God. So God is calling the heavens to witness. For my people have done a twofold wrong. And here God will detail it. One, they've abandoned me. The fount of living waters. And hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, which cannot even hold water. So what are the two wrongs Israel has done? according to this. God didn't number them out. So it's a, it's subtle. What's number one that's listed? Kind of like a negative one and a positive one. Yeah, Claudia? They for, forsake God. Okay, great. They so abandoned. number one is they abandon God. Exactly. Great. And what's number two? Right. So um, one, is, is number two that they that they made cisterns themselves, like they exactly, yeah, with their own hands, kind of like well, they yeah, well, but what kind of cisterns? Yeah, broken ones. Broken ones. Good. Okay. So on again, it's about discernment. It's about assessment, and they don't have it. This is like basically. You sold off your 1970s Chevrolet, which is old, but it runs, right? It was made of like durable mechanics, right? It's something that, it's something resilient. It's gonna last for decades, right? You swap that out for like the new car that's designed with um, planned obsolescence, right? When you have to swap out, right? It's just, it's gonna be out of, out of make in like three years. It's like computers, right? When computers were first made, Basically, you can put them together in your garage, and if it broke, you can fix it, open it up and fix it yourself and buy a part, put it back in, and keep your, this computer going for a long, long time. Now, when's the last time you had a computer for longer than 10 years? Right? A computer is designed for you for basically to break and for you to have to buy a new one. Okay? So they've swapped out God of illimitable value and instead have 
decided to buy all in on their new cistern digging business, which is busted, right? So it could be the case, Renee, it could be the case that it is accusing Israel in a sense of going on their own and digging cisterns. But it seems to me that the real, that the problem is, well, A, they're tied together. It's two things, but they're related. Because by abandoning God, they replace God with something cheap, right? The cheapness really sticks out to me. Something of, not, of low worth, of low quality, something that doesn't work. But it seems to me that if they, had, if they hadn't forsaken God and they had dug cisterns, then they could well have dug cisterns that, were, that, were, that could have retained water. Right? They could have reinforced their Torah and mitzvos. That would have been a cistern that holds water, right? I want to look at this, actually, I want to look at this image. Two, two wrongs they did. Um, and this is fascinating, because I think Rambam noticed the same thing. Rambam noticed the same thing I did. No, Rambam, right, Rashi. Rashi noticed something very important, and little old me also noticed that thing. But it says, Im heimiru yir osim Yeshkan ra echas. Okay? So even, this is amazing, right? Let's say they went to the spiritual marketplace, like people like to talk about religion nowadays, right? The, the spiritual marketplace. And you went and you're like, you found another god. And you're like, I don't know, this god looks pretty good. Like, this god seems to be like just as good as our god, I guess. Right? Would that have been okay? That's a real question. Imagine it. This is like the dating appification of, of biblical religion. It's the checklistification of it, right? The point to see somebody as swappable, as exchangeable, means you don't really love them, right? Can you imagine trading up your spouse trading up your, I mean, that's something that kids do, right? Like, oh, you, like you trade your friends to like get more popular. Like, oh, I'm gonna like hang out with someone cool, cooler now. Um, yeah, exactly. It's turning somebody into a commodity. Not a person. God as the paragon of innumerable value, infinite value, is not in a way unique, but is rather the paradigm of what love relationships are. That you relate to that person, child, parent, friend, spouse, lover, whatever, as irreplaceable because they are just them and that's why you love them. So it's again, you know, to, to Renee's kind of pushback saying like, but wait, like, can't we though swap things out? Again, the PDO and Habane is, 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 is a great example because it's the only time we're allowed to do that and it's because it's not actually worth that, right? That's a formal kind of like thing. We don't, no one really thinks a baby is worth a dollar or however much the silver and a silver dollar is worth. That's absurd. Or you can only do it by showing how absurd it is. So Timura is a problem because it's trying to change something of specific, particular, infinite value. 
and make it something, make it a commodity, make it something with exchange value, right? The real issue isn't, it isn't that you got a bad deal. The issue is that you tried to change it. The issue is that you tried to sell God and get like an upscale, like what's it called? Um, upsell God. You tried to like get a better model of God. And it says like, even if you had like swapped out God for something of equal value, says Rashi. I mean, let's even say you found a God of more value, <laughs> right? That still would have been bad. That's bad. It would have, that would have been bad. And it doesn't say this explicitly because the point is, once you see something as being able to be exchanged, something has irreparably broken. In you, you're the thing that's wrong now. Because you think that this is something that you can assess. Like you take a diamond to a pawn shop. You take like a watch to a reseller. You don't do that with someone you love, right? Once you make the infinite finite, something has gone wrong. Yeah, exactly, right? It's the, it's the difficulty that really, that's what makes a love, that's what makes love, right? It's the opacity. It's not the ease. It's specifically the difficult things. Because if it was ease, then you would get something easier. If it, because that means it's about your ego. It means it's about you. But love is the con confrontation of the opacity of somebody else. Just them as they are. Who they are. And loving them for that. It's an incredible, it's an incredible point that's being made here. Right? That the, and it's so, I mean, and that's, that's God's complaint. God's complaint is, you know, God says like there are two things. Like on one hand, you abandoned me. And then the second thing is that you swapped me out for these defective products. But really, I think that this image of the, of the, bro, of the leaky cistern is actually a very powerful one. Because it's the, huh. because once you start to try to quantify it, then you immediately enter a situation in which it ends, right? It has to be leaky. Because if you're just inside of it, then you're inside of something whole. But once you try to pace out like to quantify how you know how good it is, then it will end. Because you've actually now defined its end. That's that was the entire that was the entire purpose. This is also incredible. Is Israel a slave? Is he Yalid Bais? Yalid Bais means like the a child of of like the slaves of a household. Madua Hayalavaz. Then why is he given over to plunder? So I'm using the, I actually tend to avoid the word servant, a slave, when I translate the word Eved. But here actually I want to use it because the point of it is actually to shock us. 
So there's two ways of thinking about Israel, especially this is like used in the Chassidus all the time, as servants and as children. I mean, we see this in Yom Kippur, im kavadim im kavanim, right? Think of us like, like servants, like employees. That's really about like an employee. Is it a contractual relationship, a give and a take, or is it a love relationship in which you don't count points? Right, again, once you quantify it, it's over. Like if you are, you know, counting every sock left on your bedroom floor by your partner, just count the days, right? Like that's the end. Um, unless it's a joke, in which case then it's not really about counting it, right? But once you are actually holding, like holding things over people, so, but thinking of us like, like parents and children, right? Again, to Susie's point about Shecky, is that what it's really about is a love and forgiveness have to come together. You are not counting things against people, but in a, lot, in a kind of funny way, the way the thing goes wrong is actually the substance of the relationship, right? It's what defines what closeness means, what intimacy means. The fact that there are deviations from the path, that is what a close relationship means. Because it's like, you know, sorry, three strikes, you're out, buddy. It means the relationship was never close. It couldn't have been. I mean, not to say people can't do things that break break love. Of course they do, right? If you do something terrible, but the point isn't quantity, the point is quality. Or the point is that you did something terrible and like that person can't heal from it, which is tragic. Um, but it's not, it's, you're not a CPA, right? You cannot be an accountant of love. Um, no offense to accountants. Um, accountants can have love, sorry, you, but you cannot be an accountant of love. Um, okay. So here's the point that, um, here, let's look at the Rashi on this. Rashi says, ha evid and the hey in the beginning means it's a question. And so specifically it's a rhetorical question. It's both called in the rabbis Tamiya. Like what? Right. That's, that's the tone of that kind of question. Ha evid? Could you think that Israel would be a slave? Why? If Israel is a mere servant or the child of a maidservant, right? Someone born to slaves in a household, then how could they be called Bechor, right? Bene Bechor. Bene Bechor Ibani Matem Hashem Lokechem. Right? You are my firstborn children, says God. Right? If, again, it's either servant or it's children. And we are called children in the Torah. So, I mean, the question is actually a pircha against God. Rashi's saying, how could God be calling us slaves? And here it is. Here's the point. It is the custom, the practice, the tendency of a parent to be compassionate for their child, to love their child. So how, I mean, this is incredible. So how could God abandon them, left for their enemies to plunder? Or... I actually had trouble translating this because it's not clear to me how this is pointed. It's either how could God abandon them left for their children to left for their enemies to plunder or how could they abandon God leaving for their for God's enemies to plunder. Um are they mere servants unwatched over by their master unlike how a parent cares for their child. It's it's an it's a it's a statement of astonishment 
and it seems actually in a kind of subtle way to be one not actually directed against God, but that God's directing against God's self. Because it seems like there's a certain betrayal here. God said that we betrayed God up top. But here there's a hint, at least what Rashi is seeing in this, I think, of an idea that God betrayed us too. That children disobey. Children go off the mark. Children hurt their parents. It is fact every child hurts their parents and vice versa right but the key to that love relation i mean again i'm bracketing here like abuse or things like that in which people live rationally or like tragically have to make a choice to actually divorce themselves from their parents or their children or blah 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 but let's just say in the normal course of events everyone hurts each other everyone who loves each other hurts each other but again, what defines that love relationship is that you don't abandon each other. You, you, you stick it out. You figure it out. You heal. You grow. You learn. You listen. You listen. Shimu devar Hashem. You pay attention. So then how could it be then that we're left, that we're left abandoned? It's an incredible moment of pathos here. And Rashi, in a way, sees God turning this back on God's self. I think, and this, this, and this. The point here is that like Israel is like an acquired servant, right? Again, to Susie's very apt point, a commodity. Only a commodity could be like. I mean, it seems like it's mirrored here. We exchanged God, i.e. we turned God into something of quantifiable worth and tried to trade up, tried to get like to upgrade, tried to get the, you know, the better model, but it ended up, of course, being worse because God is, God is the best. And similarly, tragically, God started treating us like a commodity too, something that could be lost, something that could be you know, just left, lost to the vicissitudes of life. That's why I read Lo Yashkiach Adon Alam. It's, it's like you buy, you buy a tchotchke in the market and you lose it. Like, whatever. You, you know what's interesting? You only lose things you care about, right? Because if you don't care about it, you don't lose it. It just goes away. Mm. Losing is a relationship, is a relational dynamic, right? So it's just lost to the sands of time, right? Like God picked us up in a market and then wasn't paying attention, and then like someone else bought us, or left us behind. It's a, it's not the way it should be. So I think really the key here is that just the relationship is rotten, rotten to the core now. It's our fault first. We started to see God as part of a marketplace, a spiritual marketplace, which is literally the language that we use in capitalist contemporary times. You know, you're going, checking out religions in a spiritual marketplace. But anyone who, like, converts didn't do it because they were, like, shopping. Maybe they wouldn't compare different faiths and were like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a spiritual explorer. Fine. But the point ultimately wasn't which is the best one in my, like, table, like, which is the one that's going to get me the most stuff or which is the coolest one. It's the one that was compelling, such that the final stage of that process isn't it being one amongst many, it be it's it's one as the only one.
right? So we started treating God like an exchange, exchangeable product and like really rips out your heart and God started treating us like that too. It breaks your heart. It really does. Um, so I'm going to skip a little bit because I think we, we should wrap up. Um, this is incredible. So I'll just look at the last couple few verses from the main, uh, from this, from the section. And then I think we'll, we'll close there. God says, I planted you with noble vines. We're going back to this agricultural metaphor we were talking about before, right? So actually, maybe to Susie's point about like, how could it be like a sharp break, right? We went from the infant, infantile experience of the desert into the mature experience of the land, and maybe that wasn't fair. Well, here I think we have maybe this is the transitional period. God says, God planted us like noble vine with choice seed. But I find you transformed into like a corrupted, rotted vine, a strange alien vine. So it seems like invasive species has taken over. But God planted us, right? So God's cultivating us. God is facilitating our growth. God is involved. God is parenting us. But then like, is this our teenager years, I guess, right? Then we start listening to loud rock music or whatever, right? We start like rebelling and going bad. This is an incredible image. Ki im techabsi baneser basarbi lach boris, nichtama vonech lefanai neum Hashem. You wash with natrin. Natrin is like, it's like a, it's a detergent. And you use lye, right? And lye is the basis of soap. And yet your guilt is ingrained before me. Although I actually, I think a better language is tattooed before me, says God. Okay, so I want to start with the wash with lye. It's incredible. You scrub yourself with lye to make yourselves gleam. That is, even if to the eyes of others you appear righteous and replete with good deeds, this in truth does not help. Lo yo ilu. Since the sins you do in private still appear to me like a tattoo, which soap and lie cannot scrub away. I think tattoo, nichtam means to like engrave something, but like, I mean, think about the image of a tattoo like on your skin, right? You can't wash off a tattoo. I mean, unless it's a temporary tattoo, but you know what I mean. You can't wash, like, so something is so is it's now in you, right? So what's the dynamic here? The dynamic is, that's the muscle. The charity you give in full view of others does not atone for the sins you do in private. So, I mean, think about the image here, right? What's religious behavior supposed to be in this model? It's strictly performance. It's how you look to others. It's it's Instagramming it, right? It's like, oh, look at me doing a mitzvah. I'm actually, you know, not to be too Andy Rooney-ish, but like, I, I, I am actually genuinely concerned about the spectacularization of our, of our lives and the shrinkage of privacy. 
not just like privacy like privacy and data but i mean like your interiority like what happens inside of you that's just you and the way now we need to actually be able to sell ourselves to others all the time to explain what you know why something's precious like everything needs to be entered into the market everything needs to be exchanged and that devalues something that can't be valued right like what happens in your own life is meaningful to you and that's not verses or contextualized by your meaning vis-a-vis -vis other people it's just you so here we have right this idea that by cultivating instagram persona right by like giving a huge donation to the shul or whatever we expiate ourselves and god says no 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 because whatever good you do for the sake of appearances is ultimately worthless. The real question is, when you go to sleep at night, right? When you look yourself in the mirror, who do you see? That's the real question. Again, I want to bring us back because here we have the difference between self as exchange value, self as commodity, right? doing good so that others perceive you a certain way and self in that kind of again individuated infinite immediate relationship in which it's not about you being assessed quantity wise but it's just the singular question of, of integrity that's something that can't be measured right mm -hmm. to relate to yourself as the other in a love relationship with that kind of focus, that kind of attention, that kind of commitment. So we see it between Israel and God, but now we see it God saying, and for that to work, you need to treat yourself like that as well. I mean, we actually have that same thing, just like it says, um, God, just actually, just like the soul fills the body, says the Gemara, Gemara? I forget, in, one, in a rabbinic text, it's just like the soul, yeah, it's in the Gemara, just like the soul fills the body, so actually God is the soul of the world. The soul is a strictly singular thing, and so is God. We learn how to treat ourselves that by treating God that, and vice versa, as something of immeasurable value, something that cannot be measured. Not like it's, a, like, not like it's so much value we can't measure it, but rather it's not able to be measured because it doesn't, it evades measurement. Something other than that. So here I want to end. So we started with listening and we'll end with seeing Shimu was about paying attention. But then the key is to turn your listening, your attention, into perception. To change attention, to couple attention with perception. Mark and see, says the verse. Mark and see. Right up here. Let your misfortune reprove you, let your afflictions rebuke you. Remember, those were actually two of the things, right? The voice of rebuke and the voice of remonstration. Pay attention to what's happening to you. Learn from it. Mark well how bad and bitter it is that you forsake God. That offer me is not in you, says God. The real key to that verse is not how dare you, you bad people. It's actually, in a very subtle way, saying something still is inside of you that's able to notice this. And that's the part of you I'm trying to talk to, says God through Jeremiah. I'm trying to pay attention. I'm trying to reach the part of you that can realize this. 
Devote your mind to understand and your eyes to see how wicked and bitter things you have, what a wicked and bitter thing it is that you have left behind in leaving behind God. Realize what your actions mean. That is the real key to, I think, change, to personal change, is to shift out of why I was that I wanted to do something and to expand your, your moral imagination and your empathy to realize, not realize, but feel what it was that you did. To stop seeing something as, a, as an opportunity for justification, to start, again, seeing it backwards from its effect first, from its consequence first. And the fear of God is no longer upon you, which would have said to you, it's not right to leave God, whether due to God's help or the fear of potential punishment. That's a very interesting point. It's not right to leave God, whether because, now you could either say either because of God's help, which means that you, are, you should be loyal, or fear of punishment, i.e., if you do so, God will correct you. But I think actually you could read it in a slightly different way. It's not right to leave God because of God's help, i.e., you've reduced what God does, you've reduced God to what God does for you, or you've reduced God to what God does to correct you. And you've looked for other relationships to replace God in that way. Either what better, what more, what better promises you can find from other gods, or who's like a calmer, less corrective God or something like that. One who's less invested in us, maybe, who's less invested in our growth. The key here, I really do think, and with this we'll close, is that God is trying to, in this verse and in this whole text, help us remember a moment using the narrative of the people as a whole. But I think God is trying to reach every single person Right, trying to reach every single person and to try to have them remember where it was in their life that they decided to, to drop out. Or where it was in their life that they decided to see what it is that they have, this precious thing, as something that can be reduced, something that can be quantified, something that can be traded for. So we're using this large national narrative, right? Start in the desert, end in the land of Canaan, from, from the wilderness to the verdant fields. But all these images are contrast, 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 and the leitmotif is listen, 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 pay attention. And the thing that God is asking us to pay attention to is what happened? Where, when did something shift in us? When did something change? What moment in our life did we start to drop out? Did we start to see ourselves differently vis-a-vis -vis God? That we started to see God differently vis-a-vis -vis us? To pay attention. And in paying attention then, like we just saw in that last verse, the point then is to take responsibility because by reaching that part of us still inside of us that can still hear, 
the part of us that God is asking to listen, then that's the fulcrum for where change can happen, for where you can move something and move something in you. So here we have, I think, again, you know, we're getting darker and darker each week, you know, and the days are getting heavy and we're approaching the hardest day of the Jewish year, you know? It's a deeply, Jewish summers are always ironic. But what I find so effective and affecting of these Haftorahs is that it couples the deepening, the deepening of the feeling of the desperation of the pain but as far down as you go your ears your body your bones something is always left to listen there's always going to be an opportunity to pay attention and this teaches us something that we need to remember about prophecy which is that it is not doomsaying but rather using every weapon in God and the prophet's arsenal to try to get us to pay attention, to change. It's not the end. It's a chance to create a new beginning. We look at it as if it's the end because we're looking at it from the future, looking back at a tragic occurrence. But what I find so actually radically refuse, like refusive, refuse, refusing, rebellious in a way, is that we take the prophecy meaningful today and to really think about what would it take for me to pay attention, to find the edges of where I've made choices, what habits I've developed, to, to Susie's point, to start listening again to the voice that's still there start tuning in and to let it present itself to my awareness. So it's something to think about in the coming week. How can I start paying attention again? Where can I start taking, uh, finding a moment and to see it as a, uh, as a point of change, an inflection point, to identify it and to commit to it, and to see myself as someone capable of making that choice again. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for the, uh, we're going to get even deeper into it next week with, with uh, prepping for Shabbos Chazon. Um, the Parsha chat will be this Thursday at 7.30. Kabbalah uh, Shabbos Friday at 7.30. Havdalah at probably 10 again, but this I think is our last week at 10, I think. Um, and uh, God willing, if the weather cooperates, we'll have uh, services in person at 9.30. So look, uh, keep track in the newsletter for the link to RSVP. Um, and uh, thank you so much for joining. Can I ask a question? Yeah, of course. Sorry. The, the ears, body, bones part, is that metaphorical? I guess, because isn't the way you actually connect with God through spirit and soul? Like it's not physical? I don't think so. I think actually the, the, the Bible is actually a deeply embodied text. Um, I mean, there's actually no notion of soul in Torah. Um, that, that idea comes around later. Um, when, it used, when you see the word nefesh in Torah, it means self. Um, it doesn't mean like a soul separate from your body. 
maybe there's a notion of like an embodied spirit, like breath, like, you know, your pneuma or something, but there's not a notion of a soul separate from your body. That's at least evident in Torah. Um, I mean, when I say Torah, I mean like the Bible. There is yeah. that in the Talmud. But, uh, yeah. but um, well, and secondly, I think, you know, there's this book about uh, trauma and like called it Your Body Keeps the Score. And I, right. while I don't subscribe to every element in that book, I would though say that like, I think here we have a real notion of embodied listening, right? When it says your body, like let your ears listen so your body doesn't have to, our body does um, exhibit signs, right? Like we le like learning to pay attention to our body is actually a deeply uh, important dynamic. And I think like God's saying like, take your experiences seriously such that they are ones that should motivate your behavior. Right. You know, I remember actually after a certain election, which will go nameless, and people were very upset. Um, and I was, you know, walking around the streets of America and people were just like, it was like, they were shell shocked, right? And like, and I wanted to like shake people. Oh, I mean, I, well, I didn't because people were in a state of shock and, you know, like mourning or whatever. And you can't, you know, you're not going to like, reach people in an state, but I wanted to like shake them and say like, remember what this feels like. Remember what this feels like so you can commit to this never happening again. Like that should motivate you and it should motivate all of us. I mean, not that specific experience. That's probably due to your political stance, but like what I think exactly what Jeremiah is describing is Pay attention to your experiences. Remember how this feels such that you can actually take ownership of it and make sure that it doesn't happen again. Like let your pain educate you, right? Let your tragedies motivate you, empower you in a way to do what you can to create a world in which in which this won't happen again. I, I, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot, not to politicize or what have you, but like uh, in terms of climate stuff, you know, with um, the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest and um, literally the ocean in the Gulf of Mexico is on fire. Um, it's terrifying. And you, you have to think to yourself, like what is, it has to, I mean, fine, maybe all the research was too abstract and it's like, too scientific and maybe that wasn't enough to really motivate people people's and i say people i mean like government but like what else has to happen for like drastic commitment to be not just like um nice but compelling right like it's it's it, it drives it drives a person a bit mad um and but again like shake people and say like Pay attention. Pay attention to what's going on in your life and listen. Let it move you. Let it educate you. Make it mean something. It only is going to mean something if you feel it. And that's what Jeremiah is telling the people, is telling us. Look at your life as something of, as, as something of consequence. Look at your consequences as something of consequence. Treat them seriously. Treat your life seriously pick it up and take care of it don't lose it like you lose a tchotchke care for it like you like it's both of them 
right? You lost one bundle, so care for the other one as if it's both. Amen.